Hello, and uh, this is Dr. Raymond Brill, and welcome to the Entrepreneur Podcast. Today, our special guest is Dr. Ivan Valle of Retina Associates, right here in Kansas City, and they have offices, six of them in fact, within about 100 miles of the city. So, very state-of-the-art practice, and today we're going to be talking about all things retina. Welcome to Entrepreneur, the podcast for wizards of eyes. I'm Dr. Raymond Brill with my co-host, Harry Brill, and we're here to bring you stories about wizards of eyes. Yes, what is a wizard, Dr. Brill? Well, these are folks that you may have heard about, may not have heard about. These are people who are actually very successful in doing what they do in all aspects of eye care. We're not talking to self-proclaimed industry geniuses, experts, masters, or gurus because we're talking to wizards of eyes that make it happen each and every day. They are out there working every day in the labs, on the road, in the practices, in surgery suites, making lenses, making frames. Yes, we want to hear these back-of-the-house stories about innovation, entrepreneurship, and make you feel excited to do what you do. We want you to be energized about the whole eye care field. And this is not your big optical program. This is done out of the passion of our hearts. Please go ahead and subscribe to Entrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or your favorite app. Also, visit entrepreneur.com where you'll find our latest blogs and special video content. That's www.eyetrepreneur.com. Welcome, Dr. Baye. Glad to be here, Ray. Thanks for having me. Well, Dr. Baye, you've got a very interesting background. I thought you'd tell us about your uh, journey into ophthalmology and specifically retina, where you're from, and uh, how you got to Kansas City. I'm originally from Dominican Republic. I came to college way back when, many years ago, uh, to Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. From there, after four years of college, I ended up in New Orleans at Tulane University for the School of Medicine. Once I was done with that, I was in Miami at Bascom Polymer Eye Institute where I did ophthalmology and then returned to New Orleans for my retina fellowship. Eventually returned back to Dominican Republic for a few years until my attendings asked me to return and join them in practice. So I returned to New Orleans and became home. I became part of Mardi Gras and Retina Parade, which I still do this day. And I was happy there until Katrina decided to do otherwise oh, and, boy. and moved me up to Kansas City, which has been one of the greatest things that has ever happened to me. So while you were at Bascom Palmer, was uh, Jay Lawton Smith still there? We had the founding fathers at the time, as we would like to call them. I had the privilege of being perhaps the last group that had Jay Lawton Smith, Dr. Norton as a chairman. We had uh, Blankenship. We had um, Harry Flynn. And it's really the, the big names of ophthalmology for quite a few generations. Yes, while uh, commuting to school in Chicago, I used to listen to the Jay Lawton Smith tapes. And he was such a, an anecdote teller. And he'd say things like, we are having a real busy day, and the Vasicon A truck pulled up the back door, and we didn't have time to see that, that old fella. 
That's right. He was always quite busy. Uh, amazingly, we would spend such an incredible amount of time with the patients, and I think that was a, the key to his success, is that he examined these patients from, from head to toe and was very meticulous with his exams, and thus the, the success that he had as a neuro-ophthalmologist. And I think a lot of things that he taught us still are valid today. Oh, so, very much. So well, real good. Well, uh, so Kansas City, I mean, it's not the nicest weather compared to New Orleans, but at least we're pretty dry here most of the time. And I tell you what, I've never had four seasons in my life. And the fact that I have four seasons now, I'm enjoying them every year. All right. Now, just so people won't think you're just one-sided retina, you've got some other interesting hobbies. So tell us about your farm. Well, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a goat herder. The, uh, I have a small acreage, about 20 acres, in a little town in Missouri, Windsor, Missouri, where I keep bees, I have orchards, and I keep goats. My herd has now increased to 20. These are boer goats, they're meat goats, and I've been very successful with a breeding program, and I've been making them available to restaurants in, in Kansas City. Well, it sounds like Ophthalmology is your hobby, and goat raising is your occupation. You know, it was almost by necessity. I, I enjoyed my farm. I liked my trees, but my wife was finding it very boring because the trees did not cuddle. Ah. So we decided to get into goats, and, and I'll be frank with you, the, the baby goats are always a, 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 a the kids. delight to have the kids. The kids. So the you kids. have a few kids, too. I have a few kids, and this year has been phenomenal. I've had, what, two, three sets of twins, one set of triplets. And they've been so much fun to see, see and, and, and take care of. All right. Well, uh, so you've got an exciting life here. Let's get into some items uh, with, uh, with regard to retina. And we've been using the 4C Home Program with our patients for, for a few years right now. And this is for those of you not familiar. This is a device that is designed to be at home. It essentially determines if a patient is going to convert from dry to wet macular degeneration. And, and they take this little test every, every day, and it's, it's very accurate. So um, how has that worked for patients that have come in? Has that been helpful? I think it has been helpful. It, it's to me a way in which the patient also takes ownership of, of his condition. By going through these uh, 4C uh, devices, they have to be looking into this device and checking about three times a week. So it, it's, it's quite sensitive to any mild increase or distortions on the surface of the retina when the patient looks at this uh, basically as a visual field that is uh, highly dedicated to the macula. If there's any change, the 4C uh, individuals will notify the patient as well as notify us and we bring these patients in as quickly as possible to reassess and be sure that everything is changing in there. Exciting in, the, in what is coming is that they're doing home ocular coherent tomography, which we only now have in the office, but they're able to bring this to the home, and this is not yet available, but it's around the corner, to get even a much more sensitive way establishing if there's any changes in, in the retina from, particularly the macula from age-related macular degeneration. Well, that's fabulous. I always feel somewhat guilty uh, in that we get the patients in maybe every six months, sometimes once a year. And even when we're doing an in-office OCT, we also do uh, macular pigment optical density testing. And I think it would be nice if we had a daily one. And now, now this program's been around and Medicare pays for it even. It does. Or the preponderance of it. So um, this is something that's really, really going to help catch patients 
uh, before they get too bad. And I think now with the movement towards longer acting medications that we're injecting in the eyes, it's probably going to have a more significant role since the patient is going to be home more than in the office. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. So what's the state of the art on longer term anti-VEGF injections versus more just uh, regular injections? The regular injections nowadays, and and it's it's ratibizumab, bevacizumab, and iflibrocept. Do you speak English? That's right. Tell us the trade names because that's the people who are going to know. Ilea, Lucentis, and uh, Avastin. And these are medications that by, at least in my hands, you inject once a month for about three months and then start stretching out. And it has been, and most people now what they're doing is trying to stretch out the interval in between treatments to several weeks. That, that is four to six weeks and six to eight weeks, eight to, te- eight to 10, 10, 12. However, the, uh, there are some individuals that need more frequent injections, particularly with macular degeneration. There are some new drugs and one that is about to be approved, brolicisumab, that has no commercial name at this moment, and it's from uh, Novartis, that according to the studies will have a 12-week interval from the get-go. So that's an exciting thing. We're also participating in clinical studies with the port delivery systems, and this is from Genentech, in which actually a, a reservoir is implanted into the eye that is refilled oh, about nice. every six months. So that will even allow more time in between. And so far, the uh, phase one and phase two studies, phase three is when you start getting approvals, are, have been very successful. And we're working now on the phase three studies. And so far, has been working very well. Where's the port, actually? The port is in the eye. You go through the, oh. uh, the behind the colored part of the eye, the pars iris. Plana. The pars plana. And we put this port in, and it's inserted surgically. And it's refilled. It's an amazing technology in which the same needle fills and empties the port, but with the same injection. Wow. So, so these drugs you're talking about, they're the number one uh, expense for Medicare. Is that right? They are. Okay. They are. So can you tell us what, um, you know, what would the cash price be for one of these drugs versus like, you know, paying with Medicare? You know, uh, offhand, I don't know. The uh, uh, Lucentis is one that it's about probably $1,100, $1,100 a, uh, an injection. The ILEA is about the same. Avacin is the cheaper one, and it will vary depending on states and what, what the reimbursement is, but it's somewhere between you know, $25 and $100 when that is put in. However, Avacin is the only one that is not, quote-unquote, approved and tested for macular degeneration. However, most insurance companies and Medicare do pay for it. Interesting. Okay. Can you walk us through you know, what an injection is? How is it performed? I think these might be foreign terms to some people listening here. Yeah, we literally inject into the eye. Uh, Contrary to popular belief, we don't go through the colored part of the eye. It's not like going directly into the eye. We go through the pars plana, as Ray had mentioned earlier. The uh, the pars plana is about six or eight millimeters behind the colored part of the eye, and it's all around that colored part, and there are no vital structures there. We numb up the patient using uh, gels, and it's uh, anesthetic gels. We use the um, povidone iodide for the, to maintain sterility. And using a very small gauge needle, we measure about four to six millimeters behind and inject. Do you vary the injection sites as people uh, come in? You know, it has not been necessary in my hands. These things are so small and they're really far enough apart that you even look at the eye very carefully under slit lamp and you barely see any changes. And patients that have had injections over many years 
there have been some publications that looking at the parts blend on the inside and donor eyes, they really don't show much significant change. Is that a 30 gauge needle or what size? It's a 30 gauge needle. Okay. okay and there are actually good. some individuals using 32s. Okay. Okay, great. So we tell people, you know, we try to be preventative. We're, as optometrists, we try to be as preventive as, as mm -hmm. we can here. And we don't want to scare people, but sometimes that helps to, to scare people a little bit. So mm -hmm. they come in and, and they're adhering to our uh, visit schedule. So what about anti-VEGF treatments for um, proliferative diabetic retinopathy? Should that be the standard? Or what's your thoughts on that? You know what? I think laser still is still a, a, a viable entity. What happens with proliferative diabetic retinopathy, it's really the end stage of diabetes. You don't want to come into proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Very often these patients that come in that have very severe proliferative diabetic retinopathy are the very young ones that really haven't noticed any changes in vision until you look in there and you see these wild proliferants in the periphery. But the central area is perfectly normal. And these patients' eyes are doing fine. So it is very hard to convince this young individual that is still in working age to come in about every month, every month or every six weeks to get an injection in the eyes. These are patients that perhaps will do better because they will adhere to treatment by treating them with laser photocoagulation like the old school did. There are other ways of treating too that you stabilize the disease process by using multiple injections of anti-VEGF and then proceed with laser photocoagulation to try to maintain the stability. I see a combined kind of a combo exactly. treatment there. But does that, uh, I mean, that affects the peripheral vision, right? It does, and it, it, but the thing is, it, and if you think of it, when you look at the angiograms of these patients with proliferative diabetic retinopathy, the peripheral retina is already dead. The, see, the, capillary, yeah. the capillary circulation is totally gone, so you do a visual field on these individuals to begin with, and you're going to see all kinds of gaps, because again, that retina has no circulation. Ideally, you want to catch these patients when they're non-proliferative, and it doesn't mean mild non-proliferative disease with a few microaneurysms. You want to see some changes in the periphery. And then these are the ones that really benefit from anti-VEGF therapy because maintained, and maintained for a year or two, it has been shown that it changes the course of the disease. Oh, great. And the vasculature of the eye is preserved. And very often, after one or two years, and, and it varies on patients, you can literally stop injecting and, stop, and start following these patients on a routine basis, and you see that the eye actually does better. As always, this, these anti-VEGF medications are not a cure, they're a control. It's like the rest of diabetes. Right. So mainly juvenile diabetics or diabetics who are on insulin. Correct. They would be they would be wonderful candidates for this, and because it does preserve vision. The main thing is is trying to convince an individual with very good vision that we're going to start injecting your eyes. Why is that? I can see well. Yeah. And when it, really that's not the case, you know what is coming. Right. So uh, so you are you are trying to be preventative for these right. folks, and do you think it's possible one well, having like a pump? of some sort to titrate the anti-VEGF drugs or possibly even topically apply them so you won't have to be injected, maybe with some pro-drug or some way to kind of suck that drug into the eye? That would be phenomenal. And, and as a matter of fact, the same port delivery system that I mentioned for macular degeneration, the studies are beginning actually in the fall. And we'll be participating in that as well of using this port, this implant, this reservoir, that we put in in the parse plane for diabetics as well. Oh, that'd be good. Yeah, because if we can, I think if they can have that treatment but be less invasive, right. you get more people to come in. I, I'll, I'll bet you there's people that don't want to come in. I saw two diabetics just about an hour ago, mm -hmm. and uh, 
ones. I'm, I'm not taking anything. I don't go to my doctor. I'm, I'm just not doing anything. And I did my best to encourage him to, you know, to, to go ahead, follow up, get his A1C measured, take control. Um, and it's just hard for the people because sometimes they're just in total denial. And, and they, they're doing well in their minds because I'm seeing so well. Why am I being treated when I don't have any vision problems? Right. All right. Um, so what about treatment for uh, central serous uh, chordopathy or retinopathy? Is there... What's the newest on that? We haven't heard too much about that in the literature lately. And uh, what do you, and what's to your me, thoughts on central that? Central serous retinopathy is a fascinating disease. We really don't quite understand the why. Yeah, because we generally think uh, overstressed males. Gotcha. And and again, that was that used to be the main case. Nowadays, though, men and women are in the job market and oh, we're okay. getting the same stress and we're seeing that. But we're also seeing... So we're not discriminating against females. Not at all. Now. Not okay. at all. This disease is an equal opportunity oh. employer. That's, <laughs> it, it, it for, employment for uh, retinologists. That's yeah. right. But the uh, we're finding relationships with medications. Steroid use of any oh. kind has been related to central serous retinopathy. Okay. Um, there have been um, patients that actually, just by using steroid creams, kick in with central serous oh, retinopathy. So They're, maybe you know, like testosterone creams or... Uh, other hormonal Correct. creams that women use. Okay. Correct, and and men as well, and they come in now. You know, you diagnose them. The diagnosis is quite there. The, the main problem with central serous retinopathy is that the natural history of the disease is one that it comes and goes. Right. So we don't really but have. There's also a permanent impairment. It it can. Yeah. It can it, it can, but we cannot gauge a study to test if a drug works or not. Right. Because a natural history is coming and going, right. so that the med the disease go because of the medicine or did it go because of the natural history. Is there so an animal model that could be used for we that? We have not been able to get our hands in one. They have done some monkey studies in which they have been able to elicit central serous by giving them adrenaline, epinephrine, okay. which is basically the stressor. The stress. Yes. But again, it's the same thing. It comes and goes. And like in, in, in people, there are some animals that respond with right. central serous and others that do not. Why do I not get it and somebody else does? We don't know. And it's generally in one eye, right? And 45% of them is bilateral. Oh, 45%. Okay. The uh, mineral corticoids, and, and we're thinking of spironolactones, these are aldosterone-sparing diuretics that are typically used for hypertension, have been used, and in my hands, they've been quite successful in bringing this okay. down. So it's keeping these patients are about one or two months on these things. They've, so you do prescribe spironolactone? I do. Well, that drug is used for more more uh, oh, things than phenomenal. anything else. Yeah, so. and, and it is interesting, there is another one, a plerinone, which is a kissing cousin of spironolactone, that is testosterone, will not deplete testosterone for, for those individuals that are trying to get supplementation, which unfortunately testosterone is a double-edged sword because it will incite the central series as well. Right. But you try to preserve that for these individuals. It does work. When that doesn't happen and you see the central series that persists and it's impairing the daily activities, of these individuals, then you start thinking of photodynamic therapy with oh, Visudine. Oh, PDT, PDT, right. yes. And Visudine has been, has been, exactly. The uh, the Visudine has been phenomenal because it does cut away. We use it at half fluence and to try to preserve as much of the cord as possible, but it does work in drying these individuals up. Oh, nice. In my hands, it's it's my, my weapon of last resort. Okay. And it tends to work well. However, the recurrences are always there. It is something that these individuals must know that it's going to come back no matter what you do. I see. And so do you try to keep these patients calm and put them on a SSRI or anything? Or do you ask, do you um, 
ascertain the, the psychological or psychiatric aspect of these patients? You actually end up talking to them a lot about it. And what I tend to tell my patients is literally this is your body telling you that it's not putting up with a problem. So something needs to happen because otherwise you're going to go into this never-ending phenomenon. And more often than not, as, as we mentioned, you look at the angiograms in these patients and, and quite literally you see different spots of central series all scattered around. Oh, you do? And they just happened, did not hit the center, so they never notice it until it hits them dead on. So it's, it's a recurrent thing. So could we be uh, misdiagnosing some of these things that we think are maybe histos, old histo spots and they could be... CSR in the meantime, or Indeed. what? Indeed, and actually one of the neat tricks to do is use autofluorescence in the photographs, and oh, those yes. autofluorescent spots, you can actually pick them up, and when you start seeing multiple shots kind of going over the place, you start thinking of central how do Yeah, how do I know that's not uh, like a birdshot retinopathy or, hist or a histo? I guess we don't say presumed histo anymore. Right. Histo and versus a they're, central They're serious. more regular histo spots, and, and birdshot spots are tend to be quite defined. Like are they more round? Correct. And the uh, with the central serous retinopathy are a little bit more diffuse. It's a speckling that you would see, see. In, the, in the posterior pole. Okay, very interesting. Yeah, we we use our um, our autofluorescence on the on our OptiMap, and mm -hmm. it is kind of fun to see that, as well as uh, to see their uh, optic nerves. Mm -hmm. You know, in terms of optic nerve drusen, so right. And the autofluorescence is becoming much more useful these days. One of the other diseases I like to use it a lot for—not diseases, but uh, screening—is for uh, plaquenil toxicity, because okay. it is quite sensitive to see the RPE changes when the plaquenil toxicity could be available. The same thing can be said for the cone dystrophies in the retinitis pigmentosa. They really have distinct patterns in autofluorescence that one can pick up. Yeah, maybe we could touch in on uh, on plaquenil. So. We still do plaquenil studies, but uh, from my understanding, it really depends on the cumulative dose of plaquenil mm -hmm. over time. But what what's the what would you like us to have done before we refer someone to you uh, in terms of a, like a plaquenil study? I've noticed the local interns are not demanding them before they get on medicine anymore. You know, a baseline. So is the standard is change good. on that, or what? Right. No, I think a baseline is always good the moment the patient begins, and you can do it within the first couple of months of the patient okay. taking the plaquenils. It's not going to change that dramatically. What type of field do you want? What what type of analysis do you want? From really, us? OCT has become incredibly okay. useful, and, and the high resolution OCT is very sensitive to showing. It always says it looks like a, a flying saucer was stuck in there because it has that particular shape, and you can see the distortion of the photoreceptor layers right around the, the uh, macula itself in the cases that have the toxicity. You need several years of, of plaquenil before anything starts happening, but it's something that must be kept in mind because everybody's metabolism is different. I have seen patients within two years of, of taking plaquenil that showed toxicity. Oh, really? What was different about them? That you know, they, they tend to be actually the shorter and, and, and heavier heavier weight individuals. Oh, that, okay. that because plaquenil, that the ideal dosage is made on body surface area, ah. these shorter and squatter individuals tend to have just more more of the surface area and tend to have more um, increased Fatty doses. Is it stored in the fat? It, it, I, I, I don't recall to be precise okay. on, on where it's stored, but I know it deposits a whole lot quicker on these on these patients. And, and whenever I see a, a very small lady that is heavy set and taking plaquenil, I, I start getting bristling in, in, in my So we in should probably forewarn some of these patients. Yes that they could have this type of retinopathy. And then once you suspect it, we'd like to do multifocal uh, ERGs, and that oh, okay. really becomes almost like the the, uh, the standard. They're hard to get to, and we're doing them. 
the um, to get that, and you can actually see the decline in energy, but you don't want to get there. Because once plaquenil toxicity exists, you can stop the plaquenil, but there have been studies that show that it still continues creating some damage in the retina, so you want to prevent it as much as possible. Are you doing the ERGs in your office, yes. or do you outsource no, that? We, we have Which the, one do you use for that? We have full uh, we have the full-field uh, ERGs and the uh, and the multifocal ERGs. Okay, good. Do you use any visual revo evoked response testing or EP testing not, for anything Not, not for plaquenil. Not for plaquenil. Not for, for plaquenil. Optic nerve disease, yes, and, and we okay. don't see many of that in, in what we do, but yes, we, mm -hmm. do, we do have them, and we do have that available. Okay, great. So, uh, so we've talked a lot about different diagnostic testing here. What testing um, you think is coming down the pike here that other than the home 4C that you'd like us to, I mean, that you look forward to us having? Oh, well, I think we touched base a little bit on the home OCT yeah. that is there. The, um, and, and that would be awesome. OCT angiography is available. And, it's, and it actually works extremely well. You can make some neat diagnoses. But again, on a day-to-day -day basis, in, in, at least in our practice, we haven't found much use for the OCT angiography. The uh, um, scientists like uh, David Saraf out of California are really very good in finding nuances in the, in the OCT angiography. And particularly in patients with macular telangiectasias, the acquired macular telangiectasias okay. on the MACTEL, it can really hone in on the diagnosis right away um, that it would be difficult to see in, in, um, in just regular fluorescein angiography. So it seems like the equipment vendors are pushing OCT angiography. Mm -hmm. So I, I, we're, we use uh, OptiView. And they, you know, we got the RT view, and it looks like they said, well, we're not going to really service that anymore. You're just going to have to upgrade. And I think there's going to be some pushback. And uh, so we look to retinologists to say, okay, look at it. I mean, is this something important, or is it uh, like a, an equipment without a use, without a... You know, I think initially so, it was sold with the whole idea of being, you know, doing a fluorescein angiogram without the fluorescein. Yes. However, it lacks the kinetics or the movement that a fluorescein angiogram will, will normally have. So, oh, so tell I, me about that. So I could see a, a, I could get a diabetic, I could do an OCTA, and I will see the microaneurysms in the posterior pole on the OCTA, and I can see them very nicely. But it doesn't tell me if those microaneurysms are leaking and causing edema. I just know okay. they're there. And I very see. often you can get a diabetic that has microaneurysms there, but they're not doing anything. So right. there's no need for treatment of that. Just the presence of a microaneurysm doesn't mean that there is an issue that needs to be treated, particularly in diabetics. So in the fluorescein, you see it uh, dynamically. You see, that, you see a change. I see. And you see what is really happening in there. And then, again, when you're treating these diabetics and, and, and stepping back a bit with anti-VEGF, what you want to do is cut down on the leakage. Okay. The microaneurysms aren't going to go away. You just cut right. down on the leakage. You kind of help repair these walls, and they're going to be there. They're not going to restructure. Okay. Well, um, one of the things that uh, probably is a source, a large source of referrals for retina practice is PVDs. Right. So when we get these calls, and you know, all of a sudden I can't see, mm -hmm. and um, so we don't want to be too urgently referring to mm -hmm. uh, retina. Um, What's your sense of urgency when someone calls us? I mean, how quick should we get them in to see us as optometrists? And at what point do you want to see them? What's your standard? Should we say two, three days, or a week, or you know, do you want to see them right away? Or yeah, what's the, the, the posterior vitreous attachment, the, the PVD, is, is very yeah. common. 
Yeah, so that's good. maybe for our listeners, some of them are not doctors. Uh, go over what a PVD sure. is. It's it, different than a BVD, right? It is. Okay. It is indeed. The, uh, the posterior of interest attachment, the gel that fills the eye, separates from the back of the eye. And it occurs in 80 to 90% of people after the age of 50. So it's unfortunately an aging phenomenon. And it's quite common. What you want to do... Uh, it just it, liquefies or what? We don't what know exactly there? what happens. There, there is theories that the central, the center of the vitreous becomes liquid and somehow perforates and goes back and quickly there's a rush of fluid that separates it from the retina. And usually during like a uh, straining type motion. And, and, and a, not even that. Okay, not even a Valsalva maneuver. And not even Not that. a violent sneeze or cough. Or, uh, I mean, I've, I've asked guys, have the, you lifted anything heavy? No. Said, no, just a 300-pound pipe. And I'm thinking, like, okay, well, the, when does it start to get heavy? No, you find also in cases of dehydration that you know, perhaps it shrinks it and does a lot. We don't oh. know. We really don't know oh, the so mechanics. Don't know the what happens to the, to the adhesion of this vitreous in the back that it separates? We don't have a clue. What happens when you get this rush of floaters is that the vitreous separates, and what you're seeing is the vitreous that used to be over the optic nerve and vessels that tends to be thicker, and is casting shadows in the back, and those are the floaters that you're seeing in there. Of concern with a PVD, or posterior vitreous attachment, is that there is about maybe 15, 17%, depending on what you read, of eyes that's going to have a retinal tear. Yeah, I hear like between 8 and 45%. Which is a pretty large range. Yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and, and frankly, what I quote is 14 to 17. Okay. And, because again, it, and it will vary on your reading. But most of the times, the vitreous separates, separates cleanly. Some people don't even notice it happens. But what you're looking for is those tears or breaks in the retina because those are the ones that are going to get into trouble that could develop a retinal detachment afterwards. Now, when to see it, to me, the harbinger of, of trouble is more flashes of light. If you're seeing the floaters and you're not seeing flashes of light, you're probably going to be okay. You don't have to be seen right away. But if there is a, a storm of flashing lights and, and right. all these floaters coming in at the same time, then you'll want to be seen. Curtain safe. coming down. Correct. So, um, okay, so let's say we have the patient in. And I try to do scleral depression on these. I, I know there's some controversy as to whether you should depress them or use uh, like a, a fundus lens. Yeah. I so would, I would, what do you... I'd like depression much okay. more. To me, it's, it's, it's actually less traumatic in my hands, I think, than the fundus lens. Yeah, because you don't have to press real hard. You don't. I think some people press too hard. And, and you really don't. And, and if you think of it, I mean, you press down on your heart, it, it will hurt. But again, if, if done correctly... And you anesthetize them or not? No, I don't. You don't. And, and you go around the lid, you don't press directly on the globe. You're kind of moving around the lid, so it's not directly... How about... On the lateral positions, it's really up and down movement. So it look up, look up and left, and down and left, and up and right. So you kind of and then I you see. manipulate the lid down so okay. they're not directly on the eye. They are tough positions to look at. Yeah. But to me, the scleral depression is really what you're looking for, because by being able to move the the, uh, the scleral depressor, you're getting light shining into the right. retina at different angles. And so it's right dynamic. It is. Now, uh, so a lot of these diabetics just don't dilate well. I mean, we have we put everything in the kitchen sink in there, mm -hmm. or may, maybe even the Flomax users. So, right. so would that be a time to perhaps use your fundus lens a little more, or what would you? I, you know, I rarely use, use the fundus lens. I okay. mean, I examine my patients with a pocket ninety diopter lens. You okay. know, once once they come in and they're sitting in my chair, then I go for the twenty. The uh, in diabetics to look at the periphery, and if you're looking for diabetic retinopathy, the, the fundus angiography is great. And now that we have wide field angiography, it is phenomenal. Okay, so some of those, do you actually do make it perhaps an ultrasound on them just to see if, it, if, if you get something that's just a wimp, like really, you can't, you know, they, they have strong orbicular oculi muscles, oh God, yes. and you think, 
of course, those are always ones with the deepest set eyes. Of course. And uh, move their heads. So. Yeah, no, with blood. Those are ones we really appreciate. Yeah, with blood in there, the, the, the uh, ultrasound does help. Okay. But again, if you're looking for diabetic changes, that's fine. If you're looking for tears or breaks, it can be difficult to find that way. Will the ultrasound pick that up? It can if, you, if you're looking in the right spot. I see. For very small, for very small tears, it's tough. For large tears in the retina, yeah, then you can see that flap, and it's, it's, it's pretty evident. Now, will those ever just self-heal at all or not? not it, really? it's, you know, it depends. I've, I've seen patients that have these huge tears. It's, oh, my God, how did this happen? And you see all kinds of pigmentation around and scar tissue. But why is that better than not? Most tears that will heal are probably going to be in the bottom hemisphere right. of the eye where gravity is on your side. Right. The, anything happening up on top, you're probably going to get gravity pulling down and creating an issue. So are those the ones that you would put uh, silicone in? Or tell, tell us about what you put in there to, to like, if you're doing a vitrectomy or uh, what are you doing to treat okay. the superior ones? So there's, if there's a superior tear and it's only a superior tear, laser and laser and laser. It okay. works and it works extremely well. I think of laser as you spot weld everything around the tear. A tear is always going to be a tear. You can't fix it. What you want to do is spot weld it in place so that there's no leakage. I prevent a retinal detachment. Now, once a retinal detachment has occurred, then with vitrectomy, you go into the eye, remove the, the vitreous, and using a gas bubble, you expand it. Okay. It drains fluid, and then you can apply laser around the tear. And I tend to apply laser 360 degrees around in an effort to just try okay. anything that I could miss. When do you use silicone oil? Silicone oil, um, if the patient needs to fly because you ground these people for wow. six to eight weeks, once they have a gas bubble in there, the gas bubble will expand in an airplane fly, flying at 30,000 feet. Oh, that's so, not good. So you're, they're grounded. Driving to Denver is high enough. Denver at 10,000 feet is also too high for, uh, for this gas bubble. It will expand. The uh, silicone oil is, is an option for these individuals. Sclerobuckling is also an option for these individuals. I tend to use silicone oil when the primary surgery has failed. If, okay. If everything else being needed. How long is the silicone oil? It's indefinite. The silicone oil is in there until I take it out. But it doesn't. It doesn't allow for good optics, right? It, you can see through it a whole lot better than you can see through a gas bubble, but it's like looking through a, a vase full of oil. It is I distorted see. and it changes, and it's not the natural environment for right. the eyes. It, and when do you usually take it out? I like to wait four to six months. Okay. All going well in the retina reattaching. In some cases, when there's still some fluid that persists, I like just to leave it. And sometimes when things have not gone well, you just leave it indefinitely because it keeps the eye. Okay. That's good. Well, those are some technical aspects we sometimes don't know. And, the, and patients, uh, I don't imagine they like laying on their face too well. And, uh, I know, and for macular hole surgery, that's yes. that's the mainstay. And times have changed. It used to be when I started training, there was two weeks face down. Yes. To to work the gas down, it has gone down to three days. And there's some individuals. Oh, just it, just three days. Three days, and there's some some of my colleagues are actually asking for one day. Wow. And, and still getting. What nervous. what's made the difference on it? I, I think once you go in there, the instrumentation is different. We're using much smaller gauges. We're using 27 gauge instrumentation now, so we can very carefully peel the internal limiting membrane, which is the the God given membrane on the retina that makes it a little bit rigid. Okay. So by being able to do that so precisely, the retina becomes a whole lot more flaccid. So the okay. so you put them there, and uh, you use a shorter acting gas that is there for a shorter period of time. What gas is that? This is SF6, sulfur hexafluoride. 
and it, it stays there for four to six weeks before going away completely. Oh, so it dissipates on its own. It does, all the both gases, as C3F8 and the SF6, dissipate on their own. That's nice. C3F8 is there for six to eight weeks, though. Okay, so um, yeah, so some of the patients we see have partial holes. Should we be referring those, or wait till they have macular holes? Uh -huh. Uh, or what? At what point do you? Let's say we say they have an epiretinal membrane, and it looks like you know they're when they're symptomatic is, is, is when we like to see them. Very, very okay. often, I get patients that have an epiretinal membrane in my hands. An epiretinal membrane is not a necessity of surgery. Okay. The if the patient is reading and if the patient is driving and the patient feels very comfortable with their vision, the epiretinal membrane can stay there. Indefinitely. So we could just monitor those people that by OCT. By OCT, and sometimes these membranes contract and create symptoms, which is then you can okay. go in there and remove that membrane. But the presence of one to me is is not one that will that will need surgery. So if their macula or their phobia is like 500 microns, right. would that be still okay? I mean, it depends on their, their vision. On their vision, it depends on their vision. Yeah. And I've had patients that have look at those maculas. How can they be seeing through it? But they are. Right. And they're doing well. So it's kind of like, well, why am I doing this? I'm, I'm fixing what ain't broke. Okay, so we could be conservative in that regard and tell them that the literature would support it. And it is. We, we we try to tell them we don't want to bother the retina specialist because they're busy and they're actually they're actually yeah. doing a lot of things that are urgent. So when I when I send somebody on, I say you know it's like going to an OBGYN. I mean right. sometimes the docs got to go deliver a baby, right. and and you hope that if it's you, you you are going to be the next up to for surgery, and they're going to let the other less uh, urgent patients wait a little bit because. You know, nobody wants to wait three or four hours. And I, I, I tell them, look, this is a gift of time. Bring things along, bring the snack, whatever you have to do. Because sometimes it could take a long time. It does take a long Unfortunately, it does take a long time. The uh, But yes, we, we don't mind being bothered. But then these are patients that thankfully they do well. Yeah. And, and you can follow them for forever. Sometimes there is a... Uh, uh, there is a conversation that goes on between the cataract surgeons and, and us retina surgeons because of these membranes. Um, multifocal IOLs, intraocular mm -hmm. lenses, in these patients with epiretinal membranes don't tend to do well. Right. Because again, the, the optics is not the same. So very often we get the requirement the request, you know, take this membrane out because it's, well, the thing is we can take the membrane out, but it's still going to be an issue with the multifocal IOL. So retina specialists generally do very well with optometrists. And, and it seems like the collaborative eye care model OD to referral to MD and getting the patient back, MD referral to OD, uh, you know, that has kind of, uh, in, in at least in this area of the country, has not gone as well. And it seems like people are worried about turf battles, will I lose my patient? Mm -hmm. And my concept is uh, I'd like people to refer to me for things that we do best and just think of what's in the best interest of the patient. And everybody, of course, be honest about it. You know, mm -hmm. So if, if a dentist refers to a periodontist for some gum work, you know, the periodontist is probably not going to say, well, let's see the rest of your family, and then let's do your, your fillings and cleanings. Mm -hmm. But it seems like there's a, now a gray area and, and perhaps an area of potential greed where, you know, where specialists can say, well, I need to follow that patient. Let me follow them. And we certainly can do our OCTs uh, and visual fields mm -hmm. and things like that. So what's your thoughts on how, to, how do we make uh, the professions 
more collaborative, and that might be MD to MD also. Oh, up there, I think it affects everybody. The uh, I've always said that optometry and, and retina specialty really are quite complementary. In optometry, you do things we, we just never do. I mean, I, I don't know what a refraction is. I don't know what anterior segment <laughs> is in, in my practice. It just doesn't happen. The um, I take care of the retina and take care of the vitreous. And we appreciate it. No, so it those is. are the patients that uh, we, we always learn. You don't ever want to be the last person somebody sees before they go blind. Right. So, so and, and again, I think it, it, it is a really a, a very nice partnership that goes on along those lines. Because of what we do, and now with all these injections, that there is a lot of, you know, who can follow it and when are we going to be seeing these patients. And that's where it gets hazy. What I like to do personally is that, yeah, I will follow the macular degeneration. I will follow the diabetic retinopathy, but you need regular ophthalmic care. Right. So those eyes need the care, and, and literally what I do is I look who referred it, that's where you go. Okay. The uh, exceptions to that, well, they need cataract surgery, and then really what I try to do is try to see where this individual, say the optometrist is, and kind of get an idea who the referral network is and go, right. go for that cataract surgeon as well. So we don't want to lose our patients, and sometimes what happens, um, let's say if we refer to the local university, we never see that patient back, mm -hmm. and they keep them within their system, right. and and that's not good for any of the patients. And I think if a if an optometrist refers to an ophthalmologist, the ophthalmologist should say, well, where do you want that patient to be sent? So because you have mm -hmm. a relationship, but when as soon as you bypass that, there's no relationship between perhaps the cataract surgeon right. and the optometrist anymore, and then we lose then we lose that patient. I mean, if it's the best for the patient, I think we should do whatever is best for the patient. Oh, that, that goes without saying. But there saying. are general ophthalmologists now who are doing retinal injections. Oh, absolutely. And, and is that okay? You know what? It, I always say with the privileges come the responsibilities. Okay. The uh, If you're willing to do the injections and take the risk that the injections entail, power to you, go ahead and do it, but you have to assume those risks. Uh, we do see a lot of that. We do see a lot of the endothelitis that always follows that. And, and so, oh, yeah. I see. So again, it's a risk you took, you have to deal with it. The end of the minus because of the well, sanitation. Well, I mean, there the, is, exactly. Anytime you invade the eye, it yeah. doesn't mean it's not done right. Every time I'm surprised we don't see more end of the minus from that. And it's, again, you take all the precautions, but the numbers are there. They're, they're for real. I mean, you're, you're getting about a 0.02 to 3% of, of eyes that you inject that will have end of the minus. So it's going to happen. And you take all the precautions, but you have to be willing to assume those risks at the same time that um, th that you're doing it. So yes, if you want to be injecting and be sure your diagnosis is correct, and also be sure that you're, you're assuming the risk. We have seen cases in which people have been getting you know anti-VEGF injections for quite a while for central service retinopathy, and lo and behold, it's not working. Right. <laughs> that and. Uh... They do it because that's the way they've always done. Well, right? they, they've they're not the, keeping up with the studies. Well, necessarily. It's, it, the diagnosis is macular degeneration when it's not. Right, right. Um, perhaps we can go over. I, you know, I did ask earlier about the levels of urgency. Mm -hmm. so can you go over that? What you need to see, like right away. What can wait? You know, uh, we, we see sometimes pigmented lesions in the right. eye. They look flat. We see choroidal nevi. So maybe go over from uh, retinal detachments, MAC on, MAC off, okay. PVDs. What sense of urgency should we have so that we're following a standard of care right. and not scaring the patient but not getting you to stay late? Right. The, uh, with retinal detachment, which is really something that is, that is coming up to, to, I would say, in the last five to ten years, 
how emergent versus urgent is a retinal detachment. The um, many studies have come out from the large from the large academic centers uh, around the United States that really a retinal detachment can be repaired within six ten days, and in some studies go up to thirty days in getting the same visual results in the patients with so, the macula on. Or either a way. retinal detachment. A macula, retinal detachment. Oh, macula off, what you're going to get is better vision at the end because it has it has not changed the dynamics or the photoreceptors against the retinal pigment epithelium. But the visions at the end of the day tend to be quite similar if you catch it. The um, There was a recent publication that mentioned that these individuals, they were looking at two things. One, multi, multi-person practices that I'm, in, I'm seeing a patient with a retinal detachment, my colleague is upstairs in the OR, um, in a couple of days, he can see, get the retina repaired, even though I saw the patient, he has not. The results are actually identical. Once okay. you're in there, it works well. Secondly, is working, you know, in the evenings and before something comes on a Friday, you do it on Monday. Friday at 4 o'clock. Correct. Okay. Usually, that's when they come in. The um, the results are also identical. They have really not seen any big change. What they have found is that the surgeons are working outside their normal environments. Once the surgery centers are closed, right. when we make our surgery go to the hospital, it's different personnel. The personnel, as good as it may be and as willing as it may be, it's just not the same. They're not used to working with you. The equipment is different. So the results at the end of the day vary. The, uh, so these patients that have retinal detachments, yes, we will see them, and that's not an issue, it's, but when the surgery is, don't, don't expect it to happen tonight. A surgery tonight to me is a ruptured globe or a penetrating injury to the eye, endophthalmitis that you cannot see the posterior pole because even with endophthalmitis, I can actually treat and inject in the office when I can see the posterior pole and there's still good visibility back How about there. a big vitreous hemorrhage? Vitreous hemorrhage depends on the source, and that's where you do the ultrasound. If the okay. vitreous hemorrhage is a diabetic that bled, we use anti-VEGF injection, and assuming that the once not assuming, once we know that the B-scan has shown that the retina is flat, you can inject it and follow it there. It's a patient that comes in with a PVD that has a vitreous hemorrhage. Well, you know it's a higher incidence of retinal tear. We can't treat the tear no matter what we do because we can't see it, so we have to treat it with also anti-VEGF to try to speed up the clearance and control the bleeding, but we have to follow it closely. Okay. Um, you know, I had a patient last year who had an ARN, acute retinal necrosis, mm -hmm. and uh, from my understanding, that's pretty rare. Mm -hmm. So it was it was a interesting entity, and I saw her one day, and she was complaining about. I thought it was perhaps like a myositis from a virus, mm -hmm. and she proceeded uh, to go downhill within a couple of days. Mm -hmm. So for those that have never seen one, and who, I, I hope no one ever sees one, right. maybe you can go over a little bit about acute retinal necrosis. Acute retinal necrosis is basically a herpetic. A herpetic infection in, in within the retina and within the eye. They're, they're devastating. And literally what you want to do is control the, the herpetic invasion as quickly as possible. The, uh, what you want to do is go in there and vitrectomize the eye, but the diagnosis needs to be established. You need to find out other sources of... They're hospitalized usually, aren't they? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Okay. Not necessarily. Sometimes it's only the eye that is being affected. You often see it in people that can be immunocompromised because again, they don't have the, our God given. Yeah, this effect. patient I had was perfectly normal, uh, the, not ill, yeah. uh, and. And no matter what you do, unfortunately with ARN, the results could be pretty dismal because again, it's, it's, a, it's a viral entity that is in very delicate tissue that just wipes it out. And there is one drug that is uh, 
generally preferred for that. It, it, it's it's, um, it's a cyclovir is used a lot. Foscarnet can also be used. Foscarnet, right? But that's expensive. It is. Yeah. So this patient didn't want to spend the five thousand dollars for it, but I thought it's your eye. Yeah. It's worth more than that, mm -hmm. but. Um, so that's kind of be, can be frustrating. It, it is very frustrating, and, and actually the things that it, it used to be many years ago, and I'm old enough, and, and you're about my same age, remember that really price never became a problem. Nowadays it's becoming more and more of an issue, so it is, it's kind of changing the way one practices. All right, um, we're kind of wrapping things up here a little bit, but I, I do want to ask you about OptiMap. Okay. I mean, I remember a time uh, I would talk to some of your colleagues, I won't mention names, who would say, Brill, you and your OptiMap. And then all of a sudden I started seeing slides mm -hmm. that had OptiMap. Mm -hmm. So it seems like uh, Retina folks kind of took a little time to get on board with that. Right. So how has uh, OptiMap or panoramic retinal uh, analysis and uh, how has that impacted on retina practice? Okay. It has changed really the way we treat vascular diseases and diabetes included in that one, central retinal vein occlusion, brant retinal vein occlusion, vasculitis, because you start seeing changes in the periphery that we never saw before. And it is Well, wonderful. don't you, but you do BIO on everybody. We do, but to have it documented and to see the fluorescein angiogram yeah. as it occurs into the periphery, we never had that privilege before. It, is, it brings up to fore the question that is nowadays with the early treatment diabetic retinopathy study and the classifications of ETDRIS, are they valid now that we have this peripheral imagery when we did not have the peripheral imagery when that classification was made? In other words, are a patient that you say has mild non-proliferative disease, but now you have this Optimap showing that there's something going out there in the periphery that you had never seen before. Right. Is that a difference? Is that going to change? So we might need to repeat those studies. Exactly. The main trouble that, that as retina specialists we have with referrals with Optimaps is the reliance on Optimaps rather than the clinical exam. And that's why I emphasize okay. the scleral depression. Right. I have seen many patients that come in with an Optimap image. There's something funny up in the corner there that I saw in the picture. And, and my biggest peeve is, and I dilated the patient, took another picture, and it's still there. It's, well, if you dilate the patient, exam Why you examine the patient? <laughs> so, yeah. and that, and sometimes that, it's stuff on the lens, you know, and, on and, the mirror. And, and literally so. what happens with the Optimap is many of these color changes in the periphery are computer assigned. Right. They're not there. The patient could have actually some cortical changes right. in the lens in the that yeah. actually can create these shadowing in there. So yeah, you I've seen someone that said, and I tell them, that's a Mittendorf dog. Okay. okay, and you're and seeing, you're the seeing a reflect, yeah, you're seeing a, uh, a shadow of it. So, so again, so. That, that's where it comes in. But as a, as a clinical tool, it is invaluable. Yeah. But it's the reliance on the optimum instead of an exam. That's where where I think the perhaps uh, for uh, maybe for screening purposes in an internist mm -hmm. office or something like that might be. And actually, many of these telemedicine programs are relying on, on much of this because again, they do help. Yeah, so do you, tele, do you participate in a telehealth do we system? Have or what? No, do, Dr. Dyer, my partner, did, or I don't know if he still does, but, okay. I, but we have not. Okay, and so I think those are growing, and we have colleagues mm -hmm. that do that, but what is your thought on that? Maybe having, uh, first of all, having like internists that are doing photo, retinal mm -hmm. photographs in their office instead of actually referring to right. eye doctors. Um, and they're having those analyzed by somebody. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure how it works, but have you been involved with any of that? Or can you tell I had, us I what are the internists doing to make uh, meet the head of standards, and uh, but avoiding eye care? Right. The underserved areas, those are invaluable. Okay. The, the main trouble with, with photography is the quality of the photography. And like we just said, you know, the um, 
haziness in the media, be it cataracts, right. be able to make these pictures vary in quality quite a bit. So it, it is difficult to say with very good certainty, oh, this is going to work. You can be able to make these diagnoses when you really can't see in the eye. And what you're seeing is this hazy mess in there. So, so garbage in, garbage out. Exactly. So, they but again, had in an underserved area not, which yes. you cannot get anybody to right. do it, hey, that would be it, good. It, it's phenomenal. It's better, than, it's better than nothing, and it works, and it works well. So we really haven't talked about tumors very much. So mm -hmm. um, let's, what's the state of the art for that? Um, and I know not every retina uh, specialty practice even handles tumors. Right. So are we still implanting like a brachytherapy or maybe you can go over it for the people that don't right. have any idea what we're talking about? With, right with tumors, really they haven't changed much. The quality of the brachytherapy, which is radiation therapy, and then what they're doing is putting radioactive plaques in what they are is gold plaques that have these um, radioactive pellets in them. You work with nuclear medicine on that? We work hand-in-hand hand with okay. nuclear medicine, and, and in my practice, Dr. Gregory Fox is, is the main one implanting them. I help him with the explant of them, but he, he does much of the implanting. But they're designed depending on the size of the tumor, so we have an ultrasound team that measures these tumors, and then we have the, the, the plaque designed for these patients, and they typically are melanomas right. in the eye that can be pretty malignant. and. Um, and this plaque is put in there to destroy the melanoma. You have to have, a, depending on the size of the melanoma, what goes in there. Sadly, though, with, even with the new plaques, what have you, the mortality is 30%, and it has not changed in the last I 20, see. 30 years. So, well, they used to remove the eyes, but that was worse, right? It depends you on the see size. Tumor or not? Well, no, the, the thing, you remove the eye, the mortality is 30%. You, you okay. do the brachytherapy. It really hasn't changed. Very large tumors, yes, need to be removed because it, it becomes very painful, and then the, the chances of, of metastasis increase. And there are different classifications of these tumors. But it, it really hasn't changed a whole lot. The, uh, the so we need better, really better treatment at Medallis because it seems like uh, with all the sun exposure people have mm -hmm. and uh, tanning salons, we're getting younger people with melanoma. And, and literally, what is happening is they're becoming recognized more and more often. We're seeing this nevi's, and I'm seeing more patients coming in with choroidal nevi that you photograph right. and you follow. Right. Because again, they could turn like anything on your skin. Others like really, what is it, one in eighty five hundred will turn into melanoma. Exactly. Okay. And, and they're they're very rare, but they do yeah. happen. Yes. So you, and you have to follow him. And what I have seen, the last two that I have diagnosed have been patients sent in for retinal detachments. That when you look in, there's oh. not a detachment, it's a melanoma. It's a melanoma. Right. Oh, boy. So, again, it can happen. All right. So, what can we all get better at? You know, uh, just as ophthalmologists and optometrists, how, how do we do a better job of uh, taking care of patients? And, and I think patient communication is the gist of it. We talked about it earlier in talking about diabetics and talking about basically these chronic diseases. The same thing goes for age-related macular degeneration. Communicating to this patient that this is an ongoing problem and, uh, and that it's something that's going to need therapy for the rest of your days. It's not a cure, it's control. And convincing them of that is what becomes very difficult. And I think we can get better at that. Dr. Baye, I appreciate you coming in, and we touched on about 20 topics here or more, and uh, we try to provide content on our Entrepreneur podcast, and I think we've given about three hours or four hours worth of content here, and I know you could speak for hours on any one of those topics, so, uh, so we appreciate your intellectual approach here, and, and hopefully this has been enlightening to our, to our listeners who don't have the opportunity to actually ask all the questions. A lot of times we're faced with a, a lecture, and many times the lecturers show a bunch of graphs, 
and then understand that we're not that in tune to uh, looking at forest plots, looking at all the graphs, and it may mean a lot to the, to a researcher, but we're there thinking, maybe we need to see that the forest, and we need to take better care of these patients, we need to communicate better, like you said, and, and then when we refer to ophthalmology, we want to make sure that we have a, we have a valid referral and that the patient is going to have the utmost of care mm -hmm. and, uh, and also be motivated to come back so that we won't scare them as bad. So do you have any uh, closing thoughts? Thank you for being here. This is, is really phenomenal. I think what you're doing, it, it is something great because it's opening the doors to questions and answers that otherwise would not be available. So I thank you for having me and the privilege of being here. Well, very good. So, Dr. Baya, if somebody had wanted to contact you, what is your best contact inf information? Um, I don't know if you want to give a, your website or if you want to give an email or a office phone or anything, because I, I know we're going to have a lot of interest in some of these, and it may be off the ophthalmologists that are listening would right. also want to be interested. No, we're Retina Associates. We're, we're in Kansas City and, and in uh, several areas around it. The um, We're at kcretina.com. That's a K and C, retina.com. Retina like uh, for standing for Kansas City. And we're at the uh, area code 913-831-7400, and that's the office number that you can contact us at any time. Excellent. So, can we buy your cheeses or milk somewhere? Or? Actually, I'm working on hard cheeses now, and so far I'm aging a couple that I'm looking forward to trying. I'll let you know. And we did ask you if they are, uh, if uh, goat cheese is lactose-free or not. So it, it it is goat cheese, and actually, those that are lactose intolerant can actually use them. Is and it again, just yours or? Uh, well, what I what I buy my milk is from the Amish that has a goat herds in the neighborhood of my farm, because my goats are basically milk, uh, meat goats, or they they're not big milk producers, but I buy that and then I process my own cheese. Oh, so you don't take the milk from the goats? No, I don't. No. Oh, interesting. So I, I buy them from the neighbors. Okay, well that's <laughs> good. Well, you know, keeping business local is always good that's here. That's what it is. So. Again, thank you very much, Dr. Baye, and this concludes our current podcast for Entrepreneur. This brings us to the end of another episode of Entrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes. Go ahead and click over to our website, entrepreneur.com, or head over to Facebook to join our special Facebook group, Entrepreneur. See you there.